0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30 Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. This episode in the series is very different to most other shows. It deals with a difficult topic from contemporary history that of child sexual abuse, so it's not suitable for younger listeners. You also may want to skip this episode if you find this topic distressing. This episode looks at the forgotten story of how child sexual abuse emerged in Ireland. Contrary to popular belief, this is not a story that revolves around abuse in the Catholic Church. These events take place a decade before those horrors emerged. It is instead a now forgotten debate from the 1980s when Irish society First, tried to unravel the taboo, shame, and code of silence that had surrounded child sexual abuse for decades. The debate focused not on the church, but instead much closer to home child sexual abuse in the family and communities. This debate was very important. It had far reaching consequences given some of the mistakes made. It's a fascinating, dark, yet crucially important chapter in our history given the lessons we can learn. From past mistakes. This podcast is part of an investigative project that myself and the journalist Peter McGuire have been working on for the last few months. Funded by the Mary Raftery Journalism Fund, our investigation looked at how Irish society has dealt with child sexual abuse both in the recent past and present. Some of my research does come from another podcast I made over two years ago when I looked at this topic in a more general fashion. Through the course of this investigation, my views have changed. As I mentioned, this investigation was funded by the Mary Raftery Journalism Fund. We don't remember the 1980s fondly in Ireland. Emigration and recession were features of life. The political atmosphere was defined by divisive and bitter debates around the 8th Amendment on abortion in 1983 and the divorce referendum in 1986. While the 8th Amendment still haunts Irish society today, the legacy of a third debate, now forgotten, still casts a long shadow over modern Ireland. Between the fraught debates around abortion in 1983 and divorce in 1986, the first public discussions surrounding child sexual abuse began. The Catholic Church, institutions or priests did not feature, as abuse within the family and communities came under public scrutiny. While remembered by few, this early attempt to address child sexual abuse has had an enduring legacy today. Ascertaining what any previous generation knew of child sexual abuse in Ireland is very difficult. Public discussion around the topic, and indeed sex in general, were long considered a taboo in Ireland. However, the oft-repeated claim that people were unaware of child sexual abuse prior to the church scandals of the 1990s is demonstrably untrue. As early as the 1930s the Garda commissioner, Owen O'Duffy, revealed harrowing statistics when he testified before a committee on juvenile prostitution. He reported that the Garda had investigated over 400 cases of abuse of girls under 18 between 1924 and 1929. He also noted an alarming aspect in the number of cases involving younger children. The report of the committee was never published. On that occasion the Minister for Justice thought it undesirable, to publish this troubling reality of post-independence Ireland. This set our tone for the following decades. However, while public discussion was denied, the knowledge that abuse took place could not be completely suppressed. Newspapers reported on court cases involving indecent assault or unlawful carnal knowledge of children. Although the reports were brief and neither term explicit, they were not so obscure as to leave a reader perplexed. This led to a somewhat confused and fractured understanding of child sexual abuse in Ireland. In an interview I conducted with Catherine McGuinness, the former Supreme Court judge who led the first major investigation into child abuse in Ireland, she remembered how mothers spoke quietly to each other about individuals they suspected of abusing children. In her words, people did know things happened. This anecdotal knowledge though should not be confused with a wider understanding of the extent of child sexual abuse. National figures were not compiled and what few statistics were available did indicate that child sexual abuse was not a major problem. For example, during the 1970s, the Gardaí recorded 41 cases of incest across the entire country in 10 years. Furthermore, When newspapers reported on cases involving child sexual abuse, the reports were often placed in columns alongside road offences and petty thefts. This supported a wider culture which downplayed the gravity of the issue. While people may have had a greater awareness than is generally acknowledged, few could have had a sense of the scale of the problem facing Irish society. The extent of child abuse, a crime known to many but understood by few, began to emerge in the late 1970s. The case of Noreen Winchester, a Belfast woman who murdered her abusive father, brought incest to the attention of the media. Teachers and social workers who often had to deal with victims in their work were also beginning to address the issue in the Republic. However, it was not until 1984 that a major debate around child sexual abuse and, in particular, incest, took place. With increasing evidence that child sexual abuse was a major issue, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties launched a working party to investigate the issue in November 1984. The launch received widespread and sympathetic coverage. Newspapers, along with the highly popular Gay Byrne radio show, covered the story, highlighting that incest, in particular, was a major issue in Ireland. For survivors, this acknowledgement of sexual abuse by mainstream society proved pivotal. Publicity provided people with the confidence to come forward. Immediately, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's helpline was inundated with calls relating to cases of child sexual abuse. During November alone, calls to the centre soared with three to five calls relating to incestuous abuse every day. By the end of the year, the number of cases relating to child sexual abuse had increased sixfold on the previous year. What had been the anecdotal stories in individual communities were being linked up by statistics emerging from the Rape Crisis Centre. The Minister for State, Nuala Fennell, said that child sexual abuse was finally being addressed after, and I quote, a blind eye had been turned on incest in this country for too long. Building on this, the Rape Crisis Centre launched a major advertising campaign the following year promoting services for people who were survivors of sexual abuse including incest. Hundreds of survivors from across the country contacted the centre, confirming the belief that the problem was widespread. In 1985, the Rape Crisis Centre received nearly 1,000 calls, 600 of which related to child sexual abuse. In the following 12 months, 70% of all calls to the centre related to incest. By 1987, the organisations dealing with child sexual abuse were overwhelmed as the Eastern and Southern Health Boards recorded a 100% increase in reports. The public discussion and acknowledgement of child sexual abuse from 1984 onwards proved crucial. It undermined the shame, code of silence and taboo associated with the issue. In 1986 Mike Kelly of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties told a Doyle committee, the more publicity there is on this problem the more people are coming forward rather than sitting on the problem. By the late 1980s child sexual abuse was recognised as a major political issue, featuring prominently in newspapers. The reaction in wider society in Ireland was best described as confused. There were some who were very hostile. In 1981, the Department of Education surveyed schoolchildren and the results revealed child sexual abuse to be a considerable problem. However, in January 1982, Christina Van Cribben and Una Van Iwahuna took court action to prevent the department conducting further surveys. These women, deeply conservative Catholic activists, reflected a view held by many in Irish society that the safest place for children was in the traditional family home. However, most people were more compassionate but also perplexed. While many knew of individual cases, few had a wider understanding of the scale of the problem. Yet, by the mid-1980s, it was increasingly clear it had been happening right across the country, for decades. Furthermore, the emerging picture of the nature and extent of abuse contradicted prevailing views of the family in Irish society. The Rape Crisis Centre, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and the Sexual Assault Treatment Unit in the Rotunda pointed out that a significant number of abuse cases took place in the extended family. Furthermore, this abuse transcended class and was prevalent across society. This was anathema to the Irish view of the family. The 1937 constitution described the family as a moral institution, shaping what Catherine McGuinness described as a semi-holy view of the family. This view had been brought into sharp focus during the successful conservative campaigns around the 8th Amendment and in particular the anti-divorce referendum in 1986. Both referenda portrayed the family as the ideal place for a child to grow up. The successful anti-divorce campaign in particular hammered home a message that the traditional family was integral to a moral society. Unsurprisingly then, many struggled to deal with the reality that child abuse was prevalent and occurred in what were regarded as decent families. The late Nuala Fennell summarised this in 1984 as what she called The naive belief that no harm could befall young children in the close human relationship of the family. While few would adopt the hostile attitude displayed in the court action of Christina van Ecribben and Una van Iwahuna, ultimately Irish society failed to address the issue. Few were willing to admit or acknowledge abuse was taking place in families like their own. Unsurprisingly, many fell back on deeply rooted prejudices. The idea that immorality was linked to poverty had a long history in Ireland. A narrative increasingly emerged which portrayed child sexual abuse as exclusively a problem of the poor. Respectable Ireland was not to blame. As early as the late 1970s, Michael Keating, the Fine Gael TD, had linked general increases in sex crimes to social deprivation and high unemployment. This prejudiced understanding of sex crimes continued into the 1980s. In 1983 and again in 1984, the then teacher and later Senator Joe O'Toole, addressing an INTO conference, outlined this common view of child sexual abuse. He said he thought in what was a ghetto where, and I quote, Unemployment is chronic, marital breakdown is endemic, single parent families are fast becoming the norm, violence in the home is common and incest is becoming more frequent. Michael Woods, the Fina spokesman on justice, also linked child sexual abuse with deprivation and declining morals. That said, society at large was willing to engage with the debate. A major study published in 2000, the Savvy Report, revealed that Irish people overestimated the extent of incestuous abuse by the late 1990s. However, given the nature of the debate, most viewed the problem as one that took place far from their door in dysfunctional and deprived families. Increasingly, abusers were viewed as people who lived at the periphery of mainstream society, often drawn from an economically deprived and sinister underclass. They were others who did not live in respectable, middle-class Ireland. This dovetailed neatly with another emerging notion, that of stranger danger, the belief that strange men prowled communities snatching children. This gained increasing traction after the disappearance of a boy, Philip Kearns, in Dublin in 1986, a case that is still being investigated today. While a minority of sexual abusers are strangers, the coverage given to this stereotype distorted the reality of abuse. Media representation often compounded this problem. Imagery of strange men sitting in cars or sinister figures wearing trench coats peering around corners accompanied stories, even those reporting on the prevalence of abuse in the home. By the 1990s, Irish society had a distorted understanding of what child sexual abuse was and who abusers were. Increasingly, an almost Victorian view of a sexually depraved class, one at a remove from decent society, had taken root. This simplistic understanding failed to address the complexity of the problem facing Irish society. Most perpetrators were known to the children, often blood relatives, friends or neighbours. These attitudes crystallised in the 1980s have proved remarkably enduring in Ireland. While the debate ostensibly shifted in the 1990s to focus on clerical and institutional abuse, underlying stereotypes have remained the same. The horrors of clerical and institutional child abuse fitted into a narrative of the abuser not belonging to a society comprised of decent families and their neighbours. Catherine McGuinness commented that priests were seen as, and I quote, over there, and that, and again I quote, the family were us. Olive Braden, the former director of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, in an interview for this investigation, argued that many found it easier to address clerical abuse because of, and again I quote, and it's not my family mentality. Further to this, the fact that those who were abused in institutions tended to be from working class families fitted into the narrative that abuse was essentially the problem of the less well off in society. These ideas still shape our attitudes and understanding of abuse today. It is deeply discomforting to think that child abusers are like us, related to us, and in many respects of life appear to be decent people. There is no stereotypical abuser in terms of outward appearance or background coming to terms with this and how our recent history has shaped and misinformed a public debate highlights the need for a new debate around child sexual abuse in Ireland. Indeed this is essential to developing effective protections for our children. If you have been affected by any of the issues in this podcast the website of the organisation 1in4 that's one in IE has lots of great information and links. I will include links in the show notes at irishhistorypodcast.ie to similar organisations in Britain and North America. You can find more material from our investigation in the Irish Times from October 15th, 2016. That includes articles by Peter which looks at how we deal with child abuse and abusers in contemporary Ireland. That will be linked in the show notes as well. They will all be available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash raftery that's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash raftery. Next week the show will be going back a few centuries to look at the story of a man called Jack of Ireland, a notorious figure who created mayhem in the north of England in the 14th century. It's a real fascinating tale. Until then, Sloan